Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Religion Prof podcast. I am so delighted to have as my guest here today uh, Dr. Eric Klein, uh, who I think for most of the people who listen to this and thus share the kinds of interests that I have, uh, probably needs no introduction. He is known around the world as uh, a leading figure in biblical archaeology and delighted to have him to the Butler campus and delighted to have him here uh, in the sound booth with me to have a conversation and chat about things that are of mutual interest. And so welcome, Eric. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. And so I'm, you know, I've been thinking a lot about uh, what we could chat about. There are lots of things. Uh, I do things all across the Bible. Um, you are mostly sort of ancient Israel and uh, its vicinity and things like that. I, of course, am mostly New Testament, but I know that I first came across your work in um, a couple of documentaries, um, one of which might be uh, better than the other, uh, but if as long as I don't say which, then probably no one will complain. Everyone will assume theirs was the better one, but which talked about uh, Jericho in particular and its destruction. But the, one of those two documentaries really made much more of a, uh, an impact on me, if you will, uh, because I just found really striking your uh, work on um, earthquake storms and how the emergence of ancient Israel might be connected with the collapse of civilizations and um, trade routes and things around the Mediterranean. And so knowing that that was my first point of contact really with your work, um, and it was about the end of their world uh, as they knew it up until then, and then knowing that your current project relates to Megiddo, and of course, which is gives its name gives the name at least to Armageddon, and so is about the end of the world in many people's thinking. I thought, why don't we see what happens if we uh, at least start the conversation around the theme of ends of worlds and uh, <laughs> see where that goes? How does that sound? Sure, 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 sure. So the whole earthquake storm hypothesis that came out of work I did with Amos Noor of Stanford mm -hmm. University. Uh, he's a specialist in ancient earthquakes, and um, he and I took a look at some of the sites in what is now Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Turkey, Greece, and realized that a lot of them showed evidence for what we thought might be destruction by earthquakes rather than by humans, so mother nature rather mm -hmm. than humans, and that it fit into a time period of about 50 years, from about 1225 to 1175 BC. And so one of the thoughts that we had was that this contributed to the collapse that we see just after 1200 BC in those regions, that along with droughts and famine and invaders, that a series of earthquakes may have taken place as well. So this has remained one of my favorite topics because uh, it's, it's known that, that um, if a fault line does not release all of its energy in one earthquake, that there'll be another one nearby a couple of weeks, maybe a year or two, but there'll be another one. And if that doesn't release all the force, then there'll be another one and another one. And so the earthquake fault zone, basically, it unzips. Mm -hmm until all the pressure is released, and then it takes another 
400 years to build back up again, but it can take as much as 50 or 60 years to unzip the fault line. Mm -hmm. And we see this today in places like the North Anatolian fault line across Turkey. So the idea is that if it happens now, which is known as an earthquake sequence, that maybe it happened in antiquity as well, and, and there it's known as an earthquake storm. So we know that these have hit at various times, and I and Amos think that one of them was round about 1200 BC, and that it contributed to the collapse. Hmm. And so if uh, there is a, a either developing ideology or uh, the, uh, the seeds that could develop a new ideology and take advantage of that, uh, can I use the phrase, perfect earthquake storm, uh, <laughs> to um, take a society in a slightly different direction? Um, do you think that might be uh, part of the picture of the emergence of ancient Israel? Or are they, are they even distinctive at that phase? Or does that actually happen much later and then their story is reinterpreted in a distinctive way? Well, I've been working on this for a while. It's not fully formulated yet. Mm. But I do think they're related. And I do think it's at about the same time. Mm. So, you know, earthquakes themselves can be very hard to determine. Mm. You know a site is destroyed, but is it destroyed by humans or by earthquakes? <clears throat> and I would say that if you have a destruction where you don't have arrowheads and mm. people's arms chopped off, that you may be looking at something that is destroyed by earthquakes. Mm. So it's still debated. I mean, people are arguing whether or not there are earthquakes that destroy sites in Greece at this time, and it goes back and forth. really depends on who you talk to at this point. But I do think that earthquakes are just one factor, because even though they can be devastating and they can kill a lot of people, you can survive them, right? Civilization does not end because of an earthquake, not usually. San Francisco rebuilds, things like that. And the same goes with a lot of the other factors that go into the collapse after 1200. Um, a drought, which has been shown scientifically to have happened, mm -hmm. right? anywhere from 150 to 300 years. Uh, Kaniuski has looked at it, Israel Finkelstein and Daphne Longut and Thomas Litt and various others. Um, drought and famine can impact a civilization, a culture, but don't usually bring a complete end to it. And yet, what if you have a combination? Uh, you just use the words perfect storm, and that <laughs> is what I think happens, that you've got climate change, you've got you know, drought and famine, you've got earthquakes, you've also got invaders, and various maybe internal rebellions. I think all of those combined is what brings it down. But what happens for me, what is interesting is that um, in among that are the invasions of the Sea Peoples, as the mm -hmm. Egyptians talk about. Uh, these groups, nine different groups that are unified in two different attacks on Egypt, one in 1207 and one in 1177. Uh, or better yet, the fifth year of you know, Merneptah and the eighth year of Ramses III. Mm -hmm. um, it just so happens that that fifth year of Merneptah, 1207, is also the date for the so-called Israel stele, or the right. Merneptah stele, which is the basically the first mention of Israel outside the Bible. And those are on the same inscription. So I'm wondering if there is a link. 
uh, and that it's not a coincidence that Merneptah mentions the Sea Peoples coming for the first time on the very same inscription where he mentions Israel for the first mm -hmm. time. And one of the things I'm wondering, since we see the collapse of late Bronze Age kingdoms and empires at about 1200, I mean, the Assyrians go down for a while, Babylonians go down, the Hittites are destroyed, Egyptians are um, reeling for a number of decades, but also the Canaanite city-states, as we know them, essentially go away. So the world order as they knew it in the Bronze Age ends at about this time period. Now, if the Israelites are anywhere near the region, and the Israel stele, the Merneptah stele, seems to indicate that they as a people are in the region of Canaan already by 1207, I'm wondering if the collapse of all those powers left a power vacuum mm. into which the Israelites quite happily slipped. Mm. Um, the timing would have to work somehow, but I, I may be biased, but I don't think a ragtag band of Israelites is going to knock off a city like Hatzor, right? Mm -hmm. The Canaanite stronghold. Mm -hmm. I think they'd have trouble knocking off Megiddo, maybe even Jerusalem. But what if those cities have already been torched? What if they've already been attacked by the Sea Peoples coming through and the Israelites are basically walking into smoking ruins mm -hmm. or are taking advantage of a very weakened system? Mm -hmm. uh, and the later writers, when they're writing up this episode, are basically claiming the destructions for themselves. Mm. So it's a little bit, well, it's a lot circumstantial, mm. and it's reading a lot into it. But since I personally don't see the Israelites taking on the Canaanites victoriously by themselves, I was looking for a way that they could have some help. And here I think, you know, in a region where the we know the Egyptians have left, right? The Egyptians pull out of mm -hmm. this region, uh, and the Sea Peoples come on through. The Philistines are just settling down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm wondering if this is the scenario to visualize the coming of the Israelites, and whether they're coming from Egypt at that time on an, on the Exodus or whether they're already up in the highlands and they come down, wherever we do know, at least according to the biblical account, that they're established there within a century or so. Um, and so I just am wondering if we should link the collapse to the coming of the Israelites. Mm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very tempted to go back to a phrase used earlier, um, you know, because uh, I just love the thought of some people getting riled up at the thought that uh, Mother Nature brought the walls of Jericho tumbling down uh, to allow Israel to uh, either enter or emerge in the land. Um, right, and uh, yet, Because the biblical account doesn't uh, bring Mother Nature in and attribute to her, as it were, but... Uh, but it definitely uh, looks yeah. like the walls of Jericho are destroyed by earthquakes, yeah. you know, at yeah. several points in its history. So. Yeah, indeed. And it'd be interesting as well if, you know, even though the story is you know, of slaves leaving Egypt proper, right, for another place. But of course, you could, if you lived in Canaan in an earlier period, you could be slaves essentially of the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And so is it, you know, that the Egyptians uh, left Canaan rather than 
uh, people left Egypt for Canaan. Right, you're reversing it here, yes. Well, and especially if some people are are saying that the Exodus is a memory of the expulsion of the Hyksos Mm -hmm. earlier. So it just, to my mind, the fact that you've got one world order, the Mm -hmm. late Bronze Age kingdoms and empires that have happily lasted for three, four, five hundred years, they come to an end, and very soon thereafter, you get the establishment mm-hmm. of you know, the United Monarchy and then the divided kingdoms. Uh, definitely the Israelites have moved in and taken over. I'm, and, and again, I come back to maybe this isn't an accident, or maybe this is the later people explaining how that happened yeah. or whatever. But I do think, at least in my mind, I'm wondering if we should link the collapse of one and the rise of the other. Mm. Yeah, I I think it's interesting as well to to look at, you know, there are there seem to be lots of peoples around the world for whom, you know, their history seems either to 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 have snippets of recollection of events that we can document but also to seem to have uh taken the story in ways that surprise us or seem at surprising dis- disconnections with the um uh the evidence we find sort of on the ground or more to the point, in the ground. Um, and so I, I can't think offhand of anyone who's worked on sort of comparative, you know, doing some comparis- comparative work between sort of the mythologies and stories, national epics that are woven for different peoples and what archaeologists find in different places. But I think that the, the comparison would probably suggest that, um, well, any number of things might have happened and yes. <laughs> um, it's hard to piece together, especially for people who have the uh, the text, uh, you know, as a kind of either a sacred text or even just something that's really lodged in your memory. And or even a secular. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the things, what I tell my students is that I'm, I, I suppose I'm a romantic at heart. Mm-hmm. And I think at the basis of most stories, myths, legends, that there is a kernel of truth. Mm-hmm. So if we go over to the Aegean, for example, if we go to mainland Greece and Crete, You've got the story of the Trojan War, you've got the story of Atlantis, you've got the story of Theseus and the Minotaur, and I personally think that there's something to all of them around which everything else is woven, Mm -hmm. totally exaggerated and this and that, but for instance, I do think something happened at Troy. Mm -hmm. The Hittite records talk about four different wars with Willusa over a couple of centuries, and, um, and we see Mycenaeans there. I think there was something that happened Maybe not quite like Homer says, but there was a something around everything Everything else yeah. was woven. Theseus and the Minotaur, I can easily see the ruins of Knossos giving rise to that. Later people trying to explain those. Mm-hmm. Um, the Atlantis, I think the eruption of Santorini had something to do with it. So those are obviously all you know secular myths and legends, but why not? something with the Bible as well. Why not the story of the Exodus? Uh, maybe not quite as it's come down to us, but there was a something there uh, and and something like this where they're coming in, taking advantage of what's happened, whether it's earthquakes or invaders, whatever. I'm wondering if, if maybe there might not be a little bit something there. Well, yeah, I think that's often what people, you know, I, the general public... Some I, I I should not generalize in that way, um, but there there seem to be many people who gravitate towards either it's all just made up story, 
or it's all true and happened exactly as it is and find it hard to navigate the middle ground that historians and archaeologists tend to dwell in, which is that there might be a kernel of truth there. Um, right. Well, I mean, yeah. I think mostly, and I've talked about this with other people as recently as last week, it, it's less likely that somebody has completely made up a story of, mm-hmm. how do they say it, of whole cloth. Right. right? They just make it up. There's something that gets it started mm-hmm. around which everything is linked. I mean, I think the stories of King Arthur fall exactly into mm-hmm. that. So, and I do, I would agree with you that this is kind of a middle ground historians take that it's not either all completely true or all completely false, but there is a something, not quite in the middle, but somewhere in that right. middle ground. Yeah. 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 Uh, I remember there's the book that uh, was popular, you know, many years ago, uh, The Bible is History, you know, mm-hmm. the attempt to say things like, you know, give natural explanations, but otherwise be as maximalist with the biblical story as possible. So if you have, let's say, a volcanic eruption, it can spray lava and ash that turns water red, which drives the frogs out of it, which causes things to die. And and if you try to get all the plagues from, you know, one eruption or something, you're going to be on, you know, very um, implausible ground as far as likelihood. But then if, if all you're suggesting is that something like a volcanic eruption could have inspired, you know, or could have been remembered as, you know, we were guided by a pillar of fire and of smoke or something like that, then then it becomes at least somewhat more plausible. More plausible, absolutely. But you also have to get your chronology right, sure. right? Yeah. So the people that want to link the eruption of Santorini with the Exodus, well, I mean, yeah. you have problems on both sides because... The eruption of Santorini is now thought by many to um, have happened in 1628 B.C., Mm -hmm. as opposed to 1450. And then you've got the biblical chronology. Did did the Exodus happen in 1450, as the chronology in the Bible would say, or does it happen in about 1250, as the archaeology seems to suggest? So if Santorini blows up in 1628, and the exodus happens in 1250, that's almost 400 years. So there's no way the eruption of Santorini caused the things that we see in the exodus. And yet that is, I think, probably the single most commonly quoted connection on the internet, that people will, oh, the eruption of Santorini caused the exodus. I'm like, if that happened, then poor Moses had his arms up in the air parting the Red Sea for 400 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, but could there not have been experiences, maybe even by different people groups, who find their way into one, you know, nation or one region in a later time? And you know, is is part of the problem maybe that the people who are looking either for biblical inerrancy or even for you know, a maximalist kind of his, history, are looking for you know a sequence of events that kind of match up in short span with the biblical account? I mean, couldn't there be? some very different events over a lo- much longer period of time that eventually have an impact on the biblical narrative and the story yeah. that's told later. Absolutely, especially yeah. if the people are writing later and pulling yeah. things together. So, for instance, if the Exodus is a memory of the expulsion mm. of the Hyksos, mm. um, you know, about 1550, uh, and you've got things like the Tempest Stele in Egypt, which maybe a recollection or even a, I mean, a almost contemporary of the eruption of Santorini, but your biblical narrative is not being written down until, you know, first part of the first millennium, then absolutely, you know, all is fair game yeah. if you're creating a tale. 
But of course, then, you know, inerrancy goes out the window and you're talking about somebody pulling together disparate elements to create a story or make a point or whatever, in which case, yes, anything is fair game. You pull it all in. But then we're left with, uh, of course, how much of that can you try and use as history? And the answer in that case would be almost none if, if you can't link it to things. Yeah. It's interesting. I, and I, I'm reminded as well of the fact that, you know, certainly in my field, uh, people like uh, N.T. Wright have argued that apocalyptic language really should not be taken literally. It's language, it's stock language that people draw on to talk about the end of the current order, the end of things as we know them, and the appearance of something new. And certainly in the ancient world, you know, on the one hand, things like earthquakes sometimes did lead to, you know, major collapses and, you know, new people either coming in by force or taking over where, you know, a vacuum is left. And even when, uh, even if we would say, probably from our perspective, that there's no direct connection between uh, eclipses or volcanic eruptions, maybe they're happening some ways away, and, you know, maybe some effects are visible, but is it causing, you know, things, only to the extent that maybe somebody says, this is our sign, and does, right. makes it happen, right, of course, in which case they will interpret it as such, but I wonder how much some of that language is in something like the Exodus story, or in the teaching of Jesus, because it was stock language for the end of the world as, as you know it is mm-hmm. nigh, Right. Get right. ready for something new. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the end of the world and when we feel fine. You know? mm, yeah. uh, if you look at it that way, too, I mean, Megiddo as Armageddon, there have been 34 battles fought mm. in and around Megiddo. And for each one of them, the losing side, that was their Armageddon. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, the Mongols and the Mamelukes, one of them have an Armageddon. And um, Canaanites going away yeah. when the... Israel, when the kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Neo-Assyrians, you know, that's their Armageddon. Yeah. And when the Romans come on in, so, you know, there are, there have already been numerous Armageddons at this site, let alone the one that's in Revelation. Yeah. So it's a matter of perspective yeah. in a way. Yeah. I lo- I've loved taking students to, uh, uh, we've just driven sort of along the, the plain of Megiddo, right? I've never uh, taken students to a dig there or done the kinds of things that you've done there. Uh, but I've always thought it's striking just to look at that and realize that that's not a place where you would fight a modern or future battle, right? I mean, it might make sense for vast armies mm-hmm. of infantry and cavalry to line up uh, on opposing sides there. But if they did that today, then the fighter jets would fly over them and bomb them out of existence. And Absolutely. So, and yes, you um, could have tanks on either side, but then the fighter jets come in. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it, it is very much, you know, I think oftentimes, the, you know, going to the places, uh, sometimes digging beneath the surface, you find things that help. But even just looking at the topography sometimes helps us to realize that imagery that's being used in the Bible envisages and draws upon the world as these ancient people know it. Yeah. And so if they're envisaging an end of the world climactic battle, they're not thinking, okay, let me write some science fiction and uh, try and make it plausible for something as we imagine it might be. So set phasers two or something like that. Right, right. That it's really, they're going to envisage war as they know it. And I think for, you know, things like challenging biblical inerrancy, you know, and recognizing how at odds it is with the Bible, 
it's important not just to sort of read the text, where oftentimes you can fill things in with your own imagination, but to see those places and realize that what they had in mind and what they what they had as the backdrop to the words they're using mm-hmm. um, envisages something very different. Well, and that's what I was trying to do back when I was writing Battles of Armageddon and well, it came out in 2000, so it's been a while now. I was trying to get into John's head. Mm. And why did he say that the penultimate battle between good and evil would be fought at Megiddo? Why did he choose that place? Why are they going to gather there? And I thought, well, you know, first of all, if you look at everything, it reflects the Roman period, obviously, because he's writing in about, what, 80 AD, the time of Domitian. Um, But he would also have known about probably about 12 of the battles that would have been fought. He would have, all the biblical account, Deborah and Barak and Jonathan and Saul and all that, John would have known of those. He would have known of uh, the recent battles, 67 Vespasian fights by Mount Tabor and all that. Um, So I was trying to figure out if I were John and I wanted to put the penultimate battle, you know, where would I put it? Well, Mm -hmm. you can't put it in Jerusalem because he's saving that for the ultimate battle. So beyond that, I think the bloodiest place he would have known would be the Jezreel Valley. Mm. And within that is Megiddo. And he would probably maybe have known that that's where Josiah was killed back in 609. And of course, with the genealogy in the book of Matthew, you go back, Mm. you know, Jesus to Josiah, back to David. Mm. And so in winning the battle at Armageddon, You've got um, revenge for the mm. death of Josiah. So uh, it's probably reading way too much into John. He might not have known any yeah. of that. But, you know, that's why I would have picked Megiddo as that penultimate battle. So it made sense. But, yeah, so going back to your point about reading it in the through the lens of that time, um, I think is very important. And we may be dead wrong, yeah. but it's worth a hypothesis. Oh, it, I think it certainly is, not least because... You know, some of those ideas, I mean, are just so tantalizing, you know, and sometimes it's our imagination rather than the ancient person's, but sometimes ancient people did read these texts and think, yeah, this has got to be the place because, and they may not spell that out in the text that they write, that's their reasoning, mm-hmm. but it may impact the text that they write, and if we start digging beneath the surface, we may see signs of that. And so, yeah. I think there's, yeah, I, I think there's definitely a place for uh, well, letting our imagination explore those possibilities. I think so too, because John certainly does not explain why he picked Megiddo, and yet he does, and so he, there must have been some thought process there. And, you know, trying to get into the mind of somebody who lived 2,000 years ago is nigh impossible. Mm. And yet, we can make educated guesses. So, we'll see. Um, And that's the beauty of ancient history and archaeology is maybe someday someone will come along with a better hypothesis. You know, or disprove this one uh, and we'll forward the field. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. And so, I want to make sure, right, that uh, I don't... uh, make a mistake that no one who is a podcast host should ever make, which is failing to give a guest an opportunity to speak about uh, what they've written most recently and what they're currently working on. And so uh, what's uh, what's uh, uh, what's been happening lately that you've been working on that, uh, and uh, what should people be on the lookout for, both um, in terms of what's appeared recently? I think there's not just... Um, you know, a, a most recent book, but also uh, one that came out in uh, paperback for the first time recently, I think, if I'm not mistaken, as well as a current project that's 
Right. Sounds very interesting. So 1177 B.C., about the collapse, came yeah. out uh, back in 2014, then paperback 2015. Um, then more recently is Three Stones Make mm-hmm. a Wall, story of archaeology, yeah. trying to introduce people to archaeology, telling the great stories. And um, that was hardback 2017. Is about to come out in paperback. About actually. to. Okay. Um, so they in, should in a pre-order it. Pre-order right, it so. now, exactly. Yeah. Right. And then um, I'm currently finishing up a book on Megiddo, but mm-hmm. specifically on the University of Chicago's excavations there in 1925 to 1939. Wow. And I did a lot of archival research because they have left letters and cables and diaries, and so I get in. There, I can definitely get into their heads right. and see what it was like to be on the dig in the 20s and 30s. So, so I'm finishing up that. That should be out soon, hopefully. And then uh, I will begin work on a sequel to 1177, What Happened After the Collapse. So probably to be called After 1177. Okay. So I've got some projects lined up, some out, some being finished, and some to be started. Yeah, I was guessing it wasn't going to be called 1178, right? Or 1176. <laughs> or 1176, actually, yes. now that I... Sorry, my mathematical instincts went in the, uh, went the opposite. opposite direction. Exactly. I apologize. Well, we but, were yeah. thinking 1176, but we thought that that would be too confusing. Right. So They would think uh, it's a prequel if they, yes, weren't, exactly. didn't under, if they didn't realize right. that... Yeah. So we thought maybe after yeah. 1177 would dispel all right. problems. So yes. we'll see. And the idea is to take that down about 400 years down to 776 wow. uh, and end with the first Olympics, but basically tell what's going on in the Near East with the Neo-Assyrians, Neo-Babylonians, Neo-Hittites, as well as take on the question of the Greek Dark Ages. So we'll see. I haven't begun that. We'll see where it takes me. Well, if you keep it up and do things in their thousand-year chunks, and eventually you'll hit 1776 um, <laughs> I think CE, that's been done. and that's been done. <laughs> but that's been uh, done, but be, that'd be a good stopping yeah. point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least then, if you're, if you're not yes. done before then. Right. <laughs> well, it's been wonderful having a chance to sit down and uh, chat with you today, uh, more than once today. And so, uh, looking, and looking forward to um, also hearing you give a, a lecture here at Butler this evening. And so, on that note, I should uh, give you a break and let uh, let our podcast listeners um, go away hungry for more and go look into pre-ordering your book and uh, keeping an eye out for your next one. But thank you so much for being here on campus today, and thank you for being a guest on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And to everyone who's been listening, thank you as well. Thank you.